and welcome to Challenges That Change Us, the podcast where we talk to our guests about how their challenges have impacted them today and how they overcame them. Whether you are someone that feels like you are thriving right now, trudging through the mud or somewhere in between, this podcast is designed to give you practical advice, profound insight into your own experience and inspire you to embrace your life. My name is Ali Flynn, the co-founder and CEO of Tri Altitude Performance, and I will be your host. It's time to buckle up your seatbelts and let's get this ball rolling. Good morning, good afternoon, good night, wherever you are in the world, whatever you are doing right now, I want to thank you for taking the time out of your day to share this next hour with us. I received so much feedback from last week's episode with Lindy on being born into high-controlled religious groups. Lindy came on and shared her experience of growing up in an exclusive Brethren community and what happened when she was shunned after 20 years. Thank you, everyone, who answered the polls in the Challenges That Change Us Facebook community last year. We had two standout results. The first, you want some mini-episodes. And the second is that you would love some meditations recorded. You guys have asked and I have put my head down, bum up and gotten to work. Pearl Lim, Wayne Rubin and I have combined forces to create a mini series podcast named Beyond the Summit. This is a podcast where we interview elite athletes, psychologists, CEOs on the pursuit of high performance. These are short, bite-sized 20-minute episodes where we unpack what are the key elements that have contributed to high performance and some of their personal and professional experiences. It can only be found on Spotify at the moment and we are working on some other platforms. Head over to Spotify, type in Beyond the Summit and hit podcast and it will come up. Talk about high performance. Don't forget about our leadership summit in March this year. The link will be in our show notes. I have also just finished recording another mini series of meditation sessions for each of you. They are with my editor and I will let you know as soon as you can gain access to these as well. They are based on your feedback. There is one on sleep, one on self-confidence, another one on overwhelm, one on facing adversity and many more. So as you can see, the polls you filled out the DMs you send me and the conversations that we have had on the street really do matter to me. This podcast is designed for you and I want to continue to bring value and support into your world. If you would like to see anything else, please feel free to reach out to me on any of the social media platforms, Facebook community, LinkedIn, or shoot me an email. The address is also in the show notes at the bottom. On that note, let me introduce you to Ashton Wood, a man on a mission. Ashton runs a reputation management company, helping corporates deal with bad reputation and public relations concerns. But that is not why he's here today. He also runs a charity called DV Safe Phones that gets safe phones into the hands of domestic violence survivors. And he's lobbied to change the Australian consumer laws to better protect new car buyers in Australia. With no formal training or experience in consumer laws or domestic violence, his attitude is, if not me, then who? You all know my ultimate mission in life is to reduce family violence. And today is one small step we can all take to play a significant role in that mission. All we need to do 
is open our desk drawers, pull out our old phones, and put them in one of the Dropbox mentioned in this podcast today or on their website. A massive shout out to Troy Johnson from Regional Australia Bank who put us in touch. Regional Australia Bank are amazing supporters of DV Safe Phone and they have phone collection boxes in place in all branches. Anyone with those old mobile phones can simply drop their phones into the box in any branch. One woman a week and one man a month are killed in Australia as a direct result of domestic violence. It affects our daughters, our sons, our cousins, our parents, our neighbours, our work colleagues. The stats are too high and we can all play a role in reducing them. Just a quick note, there is a short period where there is some background noise in this audio. It's just someone else in the back of the room. While it might be distracting just for now, it's only for a short period and will definitely go away. Enjoy this conversation today with Ashton. We start with his story of the car and then we lead into DV safe phones about halfway through. Welcome, Ashton, to Challenges That Change Us. Thank you for giving up some of your time while you're away. You're actually away near the coast at the moment. I am, Ellie. Thanks for having me on the show. Yeah, I'm down in Byron Bay at the moment, so I, I live on the Sunshine Coast, but come down to Byron Bay for a couple of days. It's beautiful down here. Not too far away from me. Ashton, I'd love to start every episode with asking our guests, what sort of animal would you use to describe you and what is it about that animal in particular? I'd say I'm probably a dog with a bone. If I get hold of something, I really want to check it out and test it out and do something with it or bury it. One of the two. It's, it's like, what are we going to do with this thing? So, yeah, I'll either have a very, very big interest in something or no interest at all. I know we're going to be talking about the aspects of your world of where you do chase the bone, but I'm kind of more curious now about the ones that you've buried. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. <laughs> well, once I'm done with them, I'll bury them. <laughs> <laughs> How do you think others would describe you? Probably pretty personal but tenacious. So if there's something that, that needs to be done, I've got people's back. If someone's going through something, I'm there and I'll have their back right through it. So yeah, my my challenge is to not get into every single uh, wall that's out there or every single need that's out there, but I've identified that where I can help, I should. Like if I don't, then who will? I do find I'll jump into things if I can see that there's a need that I can sort of help somehow resolve. Out of curiosity, how do you, when you know that someone needs help but you're actually full to the brim yourself, how do you then make that decision or how? what language do you have for yourself to say this isn't one that I can go into right now or one that I can help with right now? I actually use a saying that was said to me when I was like 20 years old and I was working full-time and I went to check out a gym across the road and I didn't want to join it, like it just wasn't my vibe of the gym. And I said to the guy, like, I'm really sorry, but I just, I like your gym. I didn't want to let him down. I like your gym, but I just don't have time. And he said to me, you'll always find time to do what's important to you. And I never joined that gym, but geez, that has stuck with me right through my entire career and life is, that's so true. You'll always find time to do what's important to you. So somehow I'm running two businesses and a charity and and people go, oh my God, you're so busy, but I actually don't feel that busy. I said, I'm in Byron Bay for a couple of days on a Monday. It's definitely, I do a lot from probably the heart or the, yeah, it's not a plan, if that makes sense. If someone looked at my life plan, they'd go, how could you plan that sort of thing? 
mean, if I looked at my forward life plan, I'd be probably even more concerned going, where is it? Because I do find <laughs> I, <laughs> I do find I just kind of go with what's happening right now. And, and it's always seemed to work quite well through my career, through taking risks and I guess and knowing that everything's going to be okay. I imagine when we start to talk about some of our things, there's some experience on the ground with that as well in the sense that you've been able to live your life like that and find a way through it or find another way or find joy in what you're doing in that moment so you can fall back on that. Like I might not know the path in front of me, but what I'm doing right now is really important to me and I'm going to give it my all. Yeah, and I I think a big part is looking for the cues where you're having successes in breakthroughs or, or anything. For me, it's recognizing that and sort of celebrating it internally of, oh, wow, that, that really works. That, I'll, I'll, I'll do more of that. And you get what you attract. So if you're watching for the good things, you'll get more of that. If you're watching for the bad things, you'll get more of that. So that's definitely where I really try and keep my attention is all the things that are going well. And if things don't go well, it's the, okay, what was a lesson in that? You know, what, what should I have maybe done differently or planned better or but not beating myself up about it, if that makes sense. Let's have a conversation about some of those challenges that you have faced and when you say seeing the good or attracting the energy of, you know, the more you give in, the more you'll attract in that space, I can imagine that's going to be something that flows through this conversation. When you go back through your life and your experiences what jumps out at you as one of the major challenges that you have faced? Yeah, quite a few. Um, one of the big ones, obviously, having a family. So I had we had twins and one was born quite ill. So I had to manage that. And at the time, it was really difficult to understand why is this happening? Why are we hitting brick walls with diagnosis and spending way too much time in hospitals and things to try and get answers and the kids have turned out amazing. Like I'm very lucky. I've got 21 year old twins now. They've turned out really good, solid kids or adults now. And, but it was a real stage in my life where I really didn't know what, which side was up or down. Neither of us were getting sleep. I was just eating junk food to get through. Cholesterol went through the roof. Like it's just a really interesting time, but tested every corner of who I was as a person. So. Once that all started to settle down, we came to realize that we lived in Melbourne at the time, that life's too short to be doing something or being somewhere we don't want to be. So we made a decision to move to Queensland and my work was still in Melbourne. So I ended up starting to travel a lot for that work, which I didn't mind. I was staying with, you know, still seeing family a lot in Melbourne. I'd stay with my parents who live in Melbourne. And so I got to see and stay with my family and in, in Melbourne and friends in Melbourne and then come home to my you know, wife and kids in, in Queensland. And it, it kind of worked for, for a good while. During that process, we decided to, to get a new car. So we've gone out and bought a brand new car and had three years of great times with it. Like we took it on beaches and Stradbroke, Fraser Island, all the things that you kind of want to do with a four-wheel drive on a beach. And... After three years, I thought, that's been great. I'm going to go get a bigger, better one now. Like, this is a good experience. So I've gone out and bought the bigger, better one. So this one was $50,000. And it literally, it actually broke down in on day one. Couldn't even leave the dealership with it. Dropped a fuel line and started pumping diesel out all over the floor. So I left without the car thinking, oh, should I still take this car? But oh, it's just a fuel line. They'll fix that. So 
we got the car back a couple of days later and for the next three years, that thing just kept breaking down and causing all sorts of problems and unreliable. And it really started to get to me because I'm paying off this car and it was supposed to be the, the, the family reliable car so that when I'm traveling, you know, I knew that my wife and kids would be safe and be able to go where they were going. And then when I'm back, we'd be able to go to the beaches and do all the fun things we did in the last one. This thing never got taken off road. We did not trust it. You know, I'd be in Singapore and get a call saying I'm stuck on the side of the highway. What do I do? So I put up with it till, yeah, basically the three-year mark when it finally it broke down one more time. And we've been the kids have been doing surfing lessons. So I'd gone out in the morning with them and I'd literally just worn board shorts, nothing else. Because we we're just going to the local surf for surfing lessons. Got back to the car and it wouldn't wouldn't even kick over, wouldn't start. So here we go again. So I've called my wife at the time and please bring the other car, pick up the kids, get them to school. I'll wait for the tow truck again. So called the tow truck, got it towed in and I went with the tow truck into the dealership and I've taken one look at me and go, oh, you must have got the key wet because I was just in bathers. And I said, guys, I'm not an idiot. The key was actually in a plastic bag under the wheel arch, to be honest. Like I know the electronics and salt water don't mix. And they just didn't try. They said, no, no, it must be the key. So anyway, we got the spare key down and guess what? That didn't work either. And I'm really frustrated going, this is ridiculous. This is like the 20th time this car's played up on us and now I'm being called a liar. So I started calling around saying, there's got to be an outcome for this, right? So I rang the Office of Fair Trading and they said, oh, yeah, no, we can definitely help you. Yep, this is what we do. So they called the dealer and then they called the manufacturer and they both just pointed the finger at each other and the dealer just said, oh, we just sell the car. We don't manufacture it. We're not responsible for the quality. And the manufacturer said, well, we import the car, but the law sits with a selling dealer. So talk to them. And so they came back to me and said, look, we're sorry, we tried. And I'm like, tried? Is there nothing you can force them to do? And they said, oh, no, we don't have power. We can't make them do anything. I'm like, that is ridiculous. So then I looked into the ACCC because I thought, okay, well, there's this thing called the ACCC. They're there for consumers, so they must be able to do something. So I had a chat to them and they said, look, we don't, we don't deal with individual cases. Really sorry to hear you've had all these problems, but we don't deal with individual cases. I'm like, well, with all due respect, guys, what do you do for 190 million in funding a year? Like, isn't this what you do? They said, oh, yeah, no, no, we look for patterns. If we see patterns forming, we'll investigate. I said, okay, well, how many of these have you got? Because I'm, I don't think I'm the only person. Oh, we can't tell you that. I said, well, will you take my case? They said, no, we don't do that. We just told you that. We don't take individual cases. I said, well, how the heck do you form a pattern? Maybe I'm an idiot, but how do you form a pattern if you can't take my case? And they made the mistake of saying, well, you can fill in a form online. And if you do that, then we'll keep an eye on those complaints coming through online. I said, right, thank you. So I filled the form in and thought, all right, that's one part done. Then I thought, maybe I'll just lawyer up and take him to court. So I went to some lawyers and they're saying, don't do this because to go to court is going to cost you you tens of thousands of dollars, maybe even more. They'll just appeal every decision because they've got lawyers working for them and unlimited deep pockets to to fight this. So we recommend, two different lawyers, we recommend do not take them to court. I looked at the court system and there's a thing called a tribunal, which is for small cases where you don't need lawyers, but the limit in Queensland was $25,000 and my car cost fifty. dollars so I couldn't even go there. I thought, this is crazy. There is literally nothing you can do. You buy a kettle or toaster, you can get a refund. You buy a, you know, build a house and have problems you can lure up and you get a car, you're in no man's land. So out of frustration, I called a meeting with the CEO of this company because I'd been in corporate for many, many years and quite comfortable in corporate dealing with, you know, 
corporate executives, there's no problem. Let's sit and have a chat. So I called this meeting and, and the response came back, the CEO is not available, but the legal team is. I'm like, okay, cool, let's let's do that. So I was going to Melbourne for work anyway and we set the meeting up and they ended up not holding the meeting at their office. They held it in a law firm called Maddox Law Firm, which is a very impressive marble two-storey internal staircase in the William Street, Melbourne City, really impressive building. We've gone in there and I end up taking a local lawyer with me because I thought, oh, this is getting kind of serious. You know, I'm going to Maddox Law Firm here. They might try something here. So I took a lawyer in there and we had a chat about all the problems with the car and I had all the history. The car was back for more problems at the time. So they're in and out calling the dealership and come back and they eventually said, mate, we'll, we'll give you 18 grand for your car. I said, 18? That's a $50,000 car. They're like, yeah, no, nah, no, nah, we'll, we'll give you 18. That's all it's going to worth. I said, no, no, no. All I'm asking for here is my money back or a car that works. And I'll take a second-hand car. Just make sure it works, please. You know, I just want to be able to drive this thing. And they're getting frustrated and said, look, no. Look, if the car's such a problem, why don't you just do what everyone else does? I said, well, what, what's that? Help me understand. And I said, well, just sell it or trade it in. That's what everyone else does. I said, hang on, you want me to sell my car or trade it in so someone else gets to drive or try and drive this thing? No way in hell is that going to happen. So sort of in a split second, I said to them, guys, if if you don't take this car off me and use it for spare parts and give me back my money or give me another car, I'll do you a favor. And they said, oh, what favor is that? And I said, I will publicly destroy this thing. I'll make sure that no one drives this car and It'll be a PR disaster for you. Trust me, you do not want me to do this. And the lawyers looked at me and said, well, Ashton, defamation is a serious offence. And my lawyers looked at me and said, this isn't defamation. This is his own car. Um, He can do what he wants with it. Yeah, long story short, I ended up raising a QCAT case just to show I was serious. And that obviously got kicked out because it was a $50,000 car and the tribunal QCAT limit is twenty five. And then I was on a plane back to Singapore for more work. So on that plane, I had eight hours to kill. So I wrote my campaign on the plane, got to Singapore and thought I'll launch this tomorrow morning, you know, 5.30 in the morning at about 8.30 Australian time and get back to when I get back to Australia. So I launched it and, you know, jumped in the shower and literally just got wet and the phone starts to ring from a Sydney number. I'm like, that's weird. So I kind of stopped the shower and, Answer the phone and, hi, it's Kyle and Jackie O show here. Is it true you're going to destroy your car? No way. <laughs> and I'm like, uh, yeah, I literally I literally just put this up. And, yeah, so they'd been watching, I don't know how they saw it, through the media, through social media, because I ran a little bit of a social campaign on it. Yeah, so suddenly I'm being interviewed on Kyle and Jackie O show. Thankfully, only on the radio. There was no cameras because I was literally in my bath towel. <laughs> Telling them that, yes, I'm going to go ahead with this. I'm going to destroy this car and and the reasons for why I'm going to do it. I had to do crowdfunding because I still owed money on this car. You can't destroy a car under finance. So I had to find a way to get that finance paid down or at least reduced. And so I started, it was going to be me and some mates and crowbars and hammers. And I started putting the word out there that I'm going to do this. By the time the event came around, I was only about $8,000 out of pocket at this stage, which was great. But there were a lot of people who wanted to come. So people started offering other things. So one company reached out and said, how are you going to do it? I said, bro bars, hammers, and maybe an archery club that I knew was going to shoot arrows at it. And they said, oh, you know, the car's crap, but it's still pretty strong and that's going to take you a while. We've got two 25-ton excavators. Should we bring them? I'm like, oh my God, yes. 
And they said, and we've got 10 acres of land, so you can do it there too. So by the time the event came around, we had around 250 people turn up. I had to hire crowd control barriers and public toilets. We had food vans. Breast Cancer Foundation rang and said, can we raise money at the gate? And I'm like, of course you can. So they came and did that. And then the funniest thing, I had a lady ring me and said, what are you going to do about music for the day? I'm like, music? She said, yeah, well, it's looking pretty big. If you can get me a stage, I'll bring two bands. I'm like, yeah, done. So we had musicians playing and it was just a real, it was a bit of a festival. And we destroyed this car. We had the TV crews there and filmed it all and it hit the news that night. And to me, it's like, okay, I've made a really good point and I'm happy that I'm, this car will never be on salt. We, you know, we ripped it apart with excavators. We set it on fire and then we dug a hole and buried it. So, and it was, so really made a point. But what happened was a lot of people started reaching out to me saying, good on you, good on you. I've got the same problems with my car. Can you help me? And I'm like, oh my God, there's more of us. So I started pointing them all to the ACCC, saying, well, yeah, well, apparently these guys are supposed to do something. So just fill out the form. <laughs> send them your car. Yeah, fill out the form and tell me you've done it. So I went back to the ACCC probably four months later and said, look, you've, I know you've got over 100 cases. What are you doing? And they said, yeah, we're now investigating. So they put that company on what's called a redress program, which means they had to do a whole lot of things. So the new cars now have a five-year warranty, tow trucks for the life of the car, different inbound call center to deal with cases. And everyone who had problems with their cars got checks for, I think it was about $160 per day that their car was in the mechanics getting something looked at. So people around Australia were just getting these checks turned up in the mail, like, what is this? So it was nice to see that, you know, if you stay the path, the government actually can act and do things. It just, there's a lot of patience required for it to happen. But it kind of opened the door for a lot of the auto industry. The ACCC realised that, okay, this this is an industry that maybe hasn't been looked at for a while. And, and there's lots of reasons why that could be happening. It could be just about training at the dealership level. It could be about spare parts getting around the country in the right sort of time. It could be manufacturers not supporting dealerships or dealerships not giving the manufacturers all the information. So there's lots of reasons because cars are a complicated beast, right? And I've never said that a car should never have issues because you're always going to get one in a bunch that's going to have a problem, a manufacturing defect or a component fail. But it's really how it comes down to how the dealers and manufacturers manage that. And you think of the likes of Apple. You know, pretty much everyone knows if you have an Apple phone and something breaks, you're going to be covered under warranty. Even if it's slightly out of warranty, they're probably going to cover it anyway because that's they, they know the importance of a strong brand so you can trust them that you may or may not have issues, but you want to know that if you do, you're going to be able to get some sort of cover. And I think that's where the automotive industry have had a big lesson over the last number of years of they've got away with it for a long time where you have problems with the car and they let you down and you just tell your friends at the barbecue. But nowadays with social media, it's not just your friends at the barbecue that find out, it's the world. And there are a lot of different campaigns that ran around the time of mine with some people I knew. We ran an army tank over another car. Another guy wrote a song and he had 2 million views in the first two weeks, which was quite hilarious the way he did it. So the social media has really, I think, put the spotlight on on organisations behaving badly. And, and it's made people, I guess, step up and respond and react differently to and think about what's core to them and all corporates know that it's easier to 
get a referral. It's a lot cheaper to get a referral than to go win a new customer. So if they have an existing customer who's happy, they'll tell their friends and they'll get referrals out of there. If they go and burn every customer and have to keep finding new ones out there, that costs a lot more money. And I think they're all starting to realize that yeah, customer care should be number one over everything if you want to continue selling, especially in Australia, because I think Australians are a bit more of a people who just won't sit back and take it. We will stand up and go, no, this isn't right. And Ashton, I'm thinking about that as you're talking, that not many people would have the background that you had to know how to go into it, the tenaciousness and the determination to see it through. You know, I can imagine there were quite a lot of hurdles along the way that you had to jump over, go around, find another way. But I guess what I'm hearing through that story is that one person can make a huge difference. Probably the first part of when I first launched it, it had never been done like that before. And I had a whole lot of people I didn't expect, which were people who loved that model of car, come to me and go, mate, would you just, just, you know, what's wrong with you? Just sell it. What do you want attention out of this? What are you doing? I think this is crazy. You're an idiot. So it was me going, are they right? Maybe I should just sell it or trade it or just, you know, trade into some dealership and get a different car and just move on with my life. You know, and people said, why don't you just move on with your life? Don't you have a life? Like, why would you do this? So it really had me question, should I be doing this? Yeah, a big part of me is like, well, yeah, because I refuse to sell. I'm not going to let someone else take this car. I'm going to make sure that this is made an example of. And I had no idea at the time that after that event, with all these people coming to me, I started pushing them to the ACCC. I then got invited to Parliament. So the Parliament did a parliamentary inquiry on the consumer laws for Australia. So I got invited with a couple of other consumers into Parliament house with some of the industry as well and we all got to say our piece so the industry came in and basically said the car industry came in and said there's no issue with lemon cars in australia it's you know 0.0001 percent there is not an issue these three people in the room were just really unlucky but then they had the three of us in the room separately saying well hang on this is our experience and this experience of people who we've spoken to about it and it is actually a real thing and it's 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 a lot bigger than we realized so out of that parliamentary inquiry, the government changed the consumer law in Australia. So they made it a lot clearer about what is and isn't acceptable with a problem with a, a product, a motor vehicle. And in Queensland, they changed the court's level or the court limit from $25,000 to $100,000. Because we were arguing that, well, what new car costs $25,000 now? Not, not many. Most of them are a lot more than $25,000. So, yeah, out of us just just sticking to it, and I met a couple other consumers who were just as driven as I were, as I was. They probably just didn't have the social media sort of nous. Like one of them, really passionate guy, and he would physically turn up to dealerships and he'd block, he'd happily blockade a dealership in, in support of a consumer. And when I first met him, he's like, right, we need to go blockade dealerships, and I was like, my. Well, Seriously, all I need is a Facebook account. Trust me, we can do a lot more. We can get a lot more coverage with a Facebook account than turning up to one dealership, blocking their driveway. And also, it's I'm learning it wasn't always the dealer's issue. Like the dealer hadn't been supported by the manufacturer. So let's kind of hit them where it hurts, which is a hip pocket. Let's talk about this in a big public space, knowing that it's going to affect brand and that's where it's going to hurt. So they're going to want to do something to stop that. And the other part was, again, questioning 
my sanity in doing this when I started, I've got a few you know, legal threats of cease and desist from the manufacturers, basically saying I needed to remove everything off social media and apologize to them and all these sorts of things. And again, from for a little while there, I'm like, oh, do I do this? But I'm like, well, what's the worst I can do? And I got to a point where I was actually prepared to go to jail. Like if this was going to be... Really? Yeah. I'm like, what are they? All right. Go your hardest, guys. I'll send me to bloody jail. If, if I'm doing something illegal here, just complaining about my problem car, fine. Do what you think you need to do. So I really got to a point of like, no, I'm not backing down from this. This is not right. So that was you. Was your partner also on board with that? You going to jail? That's all I'm thinking about. I'm like, what was your family saying to you? They were actually really supportive. Yep. So they were also, yeah, she wanted me to go to jail. No, she <laughs> yes. Catch you later in 10 years, mate. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exactly. Send him away. <laughs> Give me some peace. No, they were just really supportive of, yeah, they agreed that the car shouldn't be unsold. So my friends and family really rallied around, which was amazing. And then as the campaign went further and further, more supporters jumped on board saying, yeah, this isn't right. Once I understood why I was doing it and could see that like I wasn't just a one week of complaining and then go away, I'm like, no, I'm complaining and I think we can get some laws changed here to help other people. That was a big lesson in that. And, but the funniest thing was the doors that started to open out of that, the right people turning up. I had, as I said, people offering me their excavators to destroy the car. I had ABC do a story on the checkout, which is the chasers group. When they'd heard that I'd been threatened, I got a call from them saying, is it true that you're being threatened about, you know, someone's trying to sue you about a problem with your car? I said, yeah, totally. They said, do you have that in writing? I said, yeah, I've got the letter. And they said, send it down. So I, you know, took a photo and scanned it and sent it down to them. And they, oh my God, you're on a plane next week, mate. We're bringing you down to Sydney. So we did a story on the checkout. And it was a hilarious story. So these guys do news, but they make it quite funny. And they had one of their cars going into an independent showroom with a smoke machine under it. So it looked like it was on fire. I don't know how they didn't get sued themselves. It kind of made it comical, but then made it, obviously people started talking about it even more. So that's when the government kind of said, all right, we better do an inquiry on this and have a look. And some local MPs, and here's an interesting part about the way the universe can work. So I'd got to know two local MPs who were like really nice people in their own little constituents, like, you know, suburban MPs. There was a reshuffle of parliament. One of them got made the Speaker of Parliament and one got made the Attorney General, like just literally overnight. So I've gone back to the two and said, hey, look in your new roles. Is there anything else we can do? Like, absolutely. Yes, we can get you into parliament. We can like, there's all these doors just went opened up. And I could only imagine from the other side, the automotive industry going, how the hell has this fool on Facebook ended up in bloody parliament? Like, what, what is going on here? So it just really interesting, the, the doors that opened up, the possibility to make a change. And it was definitely nothing you could ever have planned, ever. Like, you could not sit down and write a story saying, this is what I'm going to do to get to this outcome. However, I know you're saying that, that doors open, but there's something similar in your story when we get to the next chapter. So, yes, the door's open, but what we've already heard is that you are prepared to stand up and have a voice for everyone that doesn't have a voice. You're prepared to take the harder road to get the outcome that you know is needed in that space. That's what I'm hearing. Yeah. Hey guys, very quickly jumping in to tell you about an exciting and rare opportunity. In March this year, we are inviting 25 senior leaders for three days to the High Performance Leadership Summit. 
Are you driven by the pursuit of high performance? Have you spent years navigating the complexities of the business world, striving for excellence? I share that same relentless pursuit, and I've discovered that some of the most invaluable insights into high performance have come from the most unexpected places outside of the confines of business. I want you to picture this, a curated, multidisciplinary approach to high performance, a team of exceptional individuals. Imagine learning from a three-time Australian Olympian, Sammy Kennedy Sim, who proudly carried the national flag at the last Winter Olympics. Add in David Ballard, the head of high performance at the powerhouse Brisbane Broncos NRL team, mastering excellence in high-pressure team sports. Now, most of you would have seen the grand final last year to think about where that team came from at the beginning of the season and where they landed at the end. Now throw in a military expert with active service experience and some organizational psychologists, experts in unraveling the complexities of our minds and our hearts. And to top it off, some seasoned business leaders who have lived and breathed high performance, high pressured situations, navigating boardrooms to leading successful multinational companies. This, my friends, is the recipe for the High Performance Leadership Summit in 2024, where worlds collide and lessons merge into a powerhouse of knowledge. This is not your average event. It's an intimate setting limited to 25 senior business leaders. There will be absolutely no passive experience here. Think engaging conversations, hands-on workshops, personalized insight tailored to your unique challenges. Imagine three days of immersive, transformative, unparalleled experiences. If you're hungry for more than just a conference, if you're ready to dive deep into the intricacies of high performance with like-minded peers, then this is your moment. I would love to invite you to join us. If you're interested, jump in the show notes, click on the link, book a conversation with me, DM me on LinkedIn. I really would love to have a chat to you about this. Now let's get back to the episode. So that kind of takes us into the next part, which was that I was traveling a lot for my work. So the consulting work I was doing, I was in Melbourne, Sydney, Singapore, and that was the issue with this trying to find a reliable car. So we got through that issue with the other car and then got all that sorted or didn't get it sorted, destroyed it. So I actually didn't get that sorted, but I bought another car as well. And I was traveling a lot, working really hard, doing that sort of thing. And then COVID hit. So suddenly all my travel stopped. The work didn't, but the travel did. So I had all this extra time on my hands. And so I started, like most people, when you work from home all the time and not having to travel, you're like, my God, I've got time to go do cleanups and all sorts of things. So decided to clean up the house and fill the car with goods to donate to charity. Loaded the car up one day and got lazy and thought I literally cannot be bothered driving this five minutes down the road, literally five minutes down the road. I'll do it in the morning. Because Queensland wasn't in lockdown. We we in Queensland had a very light lockdown period compared to you know Melbourne and Sydney that well, Victoria and New South Wales that just were in lockdown for hundreds of days. You know, we're pretty slack up in Queensland going, oh, it's all good up here. We're all right, we're good. You know, hear about the one case and that was it. So I've loaded the car up and thought, I'll just do it tomorrow. I can't be bothered today. And that night we went into lockdown. So I've got my car loaded and nowhere to take anything. I'm like, oh, damn it. <laughs> like I've, I've missed the boat here. 
And I didn't want the stuff back in the house. It wasn't junk, but I just like, I checked it out of my life. I wanted it gone. And um, so I thought someone's got to want this stuff. It's not junk and I'm not wanting to just run it to the tip. So I rang the only person I could think of, and it was an ex-police senior sergeant who I'd met at Chambers of Commerce on the Sunshine Coast. And I knew she dealt with domestic violence, but that's all I knew. And I said to her, Janine, I've got a carload of goods. I know you deal with domestic violence, and I, I honestly couldn't think of anyone else who needed it. Where can I take it? Like, if you've got someone who needs it, or I've heard of safe houses or something, anywhere I can take this stuff. And she said to me, Ashton, what I need right now are mobile phones. Mobile phones? I got a carload of stuff. She said, yeah, that's good. You know, we'll talk about that. But right now I need phones. I said, what on earth do you need phones for? And she said, well, here in agency land, the police and DV agencies, we can have the best safety and escape plan for victims of domestic violence. But quite often it's their phone that's being tracked, monitored or taken from them as part of the control. And they literally can't call us to enact a plan. And I'm like, what do you mean enact a plan to, to get out? And she says, yeah. I said, oh, my God. All right. Well, I've, I've got two phones here you can have right now. They're on one of these nerds that just upgrades every time there's a new phone and the old one goes in the drawer and that's where it's going to sit until eventually it's going to go in the bin. And she said, well, if they work, they could save a life. I said, oh, my God. All right. Well, yes, you can have my two phones right away. And I said, how many more do you need? You know, I'm thinking in my mind, I don't know maybe 80 phones, that would be a lot to get. And I'm thinking of all my connections in corporate because we've all got phones in our drawers. Everyone does. And she said to me, Ashton, you'll never get me enough phones. I'm like, what do you mean? Well, give me a number. What are you talking about? She goes, well, there's over 2 million victims of domestic violence. I'm like, 2 million? 2 million phones? You need 2 million phones. I said, all right, well, I, I can't, Guaranteed 2 million, but I can certainly ask my community and we can get you some phones and let's see how we go. But just so I can be really clear with people, you know, what countries are you going to send these phones to? She said, countries? I said, yeah, you said 2 million people. You know, I'm off thinking, is it Papua New Guinea? Is it, where is it? Where is this happening in third world countries? And she said, um, with all due respect, Ashton, what rock have you been living under? This is just here in Australia. And that floored me. That really hit me hard. I'm like, what? Here? And I don't know whether it was a pride thing for Australia or just a shock thing for Australia, but it kind of hit every part of me. I was like, that is just, what? That's outrageous. I said, well, are you sure? And she goes, of course I'm sure. I'm, this is what I do. And because I, I was just blown away. So I went out to my network mostly on LinkedIn to start with and just said, hey, look, I'm going to do this thing. If anyone's got any spare phones, send them up to me and I'll check them, make sure they're going to work, make sure they reset and I'll forward them on to the police. And I'm shocked at how many people came back and said, good on you, I've been a victim or my mum or my sister uh, or my daughter. I'm like, whoa, what, wait, well, we've worked together for years and you've never mentioned this. Or, you know, when would we? You know, we've sat across tables like till late at night working on bids and things and you've never mentioned it. You know, well, it's not really the place to talk about this stuff. So I realised that it really is a huge issue happening and no one has an avenue to talk about it. So I just started collecting phones and, and pulled a few people locally together that I knew in the industry, like different industries, so I needed a a PR person to help me, a new IT guy who had 
uh, like phone repair stores. He had a chain of them or still has a chain of them in Queensland. So I've rung him and said, look, I want to collect phones for victims. I don't really want people dropping phones to my house in COVID for two reasons. I don't want to get COVID and I don't want people knowing my address. Would you mind receiving phones at your stores? Are you open? He said, oh, yeah, we're, we're all open. It's a, you know, we're a critical service. A phone is a critical service. And he said, and to be honest, right now, it's pretty quiet. People are not going out. They're all staying indoors. So the, he said, we've got two people at every store and they're kind of bored. So he said, yeah, mate, get people to drop into our stores and we'll even look at them for you. So when we're quiet, we'll, we'll have a look. And if they're phones that we've got spares for, we'll even fix them for you. So he just started receiving phones and fixing them for free. So before we knew it, we had 300 phones received and sent back out to, firstly, to this one policewoman, and then she connected us with another agency. That next agency said, well, 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 this is too many. We can't handle this many. <laughs> like, how are we supposed to find places for all these? So they then started connecting us to other agencies. And um, so I decided, actually, let's let's do this. Let's make this a thing. So I started asking around about how would I do it, what structure would I do it in, because I was literally just doing it out of a spare room. I had a business name registered in a trademark, but that was it, just to protect a little bit in case someone tried to copy the idea or something and get phones and sell them or something like that. So I met up with a lady I was introduced to and she's a consultant and her industry is, well, she fixes broken charities. That's kind of how I was introduced to it. So I met with her and said, hey, look, this is what I'm doing right now. I'm getting phones. And she said, oh, it's really nice, really good thing to do. Good on you. What do you want to do with this? And I said, well, I'm thinking of forming a charity. She looks at me and goes, are you insane? Like, what do you mean? She goes, Ash, it's COVID right now. Like charities are, are, are failing. They, a lot of charities run on like the corner stores selling secondhand goods and they can't open right now. You can't get staff around. Normally your volunteers are quite often older and they're petrified of COVID. They're not leaving the house. And you want to start a charity now in the middle of COVID? And I said, well, I don't really want to start a charity, but if that's the structure I need, then that's what I'll do. And she goes, have you got any idea what's involved? I went, no. She goes, you're going to need a chairman. You're going to need a constitution. Do you even know what that is? I said, no, what's a constitution? She goes, you need a constitution to go through to get the approval for the charity and the DGR status, which is a deductible gift recipient. And she said, and you're in a category here called harm prevention, so it'll go to the ATO, they'll look at it and go, harm prevention's not our problem, handball off to four ministers to sign off. Do you know any ministers? And I'm like, no, I don't. She goes, you're insane. And I said, all right, well, have a think about it. Come back to me in a couple of weeks. So met up a couple of weeks later. She says, right, where you at? And I said, no, we're doing it. She goes, what do you mean? And I said, I've got my board pulled together. She goes, who's your chairman then? And I said, oh, the ex-commissioner of Salvation Army. She goes, what? How did you find him? I said, no, he found me. He just heard what I was doing and reached out and offered to help. So I said, we're doing this. So my question to you is, you know, you fix broken charities. Here's a charity. We're not broken, but we have nothing. So I would love you to come and help me build it properly from the start so we don't have to have anything that's broken. Let's let's do it right from the start. So I employed her and self-sort of funded that for 18 months to, to build it up. And that was, yeah, about three and a half years ago. So we've now received around 20,000 mobile phones have come through from all over Australia. We have collection boxes in 600 places around the country, including all Firmwood Fitness gyms. And here's the best bit, all Jeep dealerships. (laughs) Who are my nemesis number one. 
So I approached Jeep and said, look, I'm doing this. What do you think? And they said, yep, we love it. We're going to support you. Did they know who you were when you approached them? (laughs) Yes, they did. Absolutely. Yep, they did. (laughs) I'll never forget that name. (laughs) (laughs) Through that period, they'd realized that, yes, I was an asshole to them, let's be honest. Excuse you can French. move mountains. Yeah. I, I would, you know, if they did something good and helped someone, I'd tell the press, yeah, they're, they're actually doing better. They're doing better. And I watched them get better and better and better. And I would, and I said to them, you do the right thing. I'll happily tell the press you're doing the right thing. But come on, give me some evidence so I can see that you're doing the right thing. So over the years, they did get better and better and better. And so, yeah, they support this charity with us. And we now give about 19 phones a day leave our office to go out to victims and we send them out to nearly 300 domestic violence agencies across the country so we send them out for free and that's been my biggest challenge with this again talking about the car stuff if i had a plan it would have looked so different to the way it actually deployed and rolled out this charity i keep saying to people it's the worst business model in the world like i don't recommend it because people donate phones to us for free which is great But phones are really expensive to fix screens and batteries on. Every phone needs a charger cable. Every phone needs a phone credit and top-up credit, and we pay for postage as well. So our cost is currently $75 per phone on average. So some need new screens and batteries, some don't. They all need postage, they all need SIM cards, they all need cables. And we're sending out nearly 20 a day. So if you do the numbers, that's, that's a really big cost. And I rightly or wrongly, will not sell a phone. So as far as what I've learned about the agencies is they are trying to provide amazing support to victims and victims are going through absolute hell. So they've quite often financial control, coercive control. There could be physical control as well. There's all the you know the mind games that go on for those who are in that situation. So the agencies are doing an amazing job supporting them, but quite often the critical parts for that agency is to find that person somewhere else to go, somewhere to live, even if it's just short term. What about food? What about clothing? The idea of spending two to $800 on a mobile phone is out of the question. There's no way. They're going to spend that on food and accommodation well before a phone. But if the victim doesn't have a phone, how do they actually enact the plan and get out, get safe and stay in contact with the support network once they're out? So this is a completely free service. And it needs to stay that way. So my challenge every day is to find a way to keep it running. So I've got four part-time people there at the moment. Myself and the board, we don't charge. We we have our other businesses. And we've got around 18 volunteers that come in and out. But we need people in there, the four part-time people. We need them because some other big charities spoke to me when I first started. And they said, look, make sure you've got a core team of paid people around you. Because volunteers are absolutely amazing. But things will come up. You know, they're volunteering because they can. They've got the time. They don't need the money. So, you know, they'll go on holidays and they'll mind the grandkids and they'll be doing all sorts of things in their beautiful lives that they can do. But if they're doing a critical part of your charity and they go and do something else, you don't want your charity to grind to a halt. So it's been a real interesting learning curve. And again, attracting the right people. We've got the most amazing volunteers. We had a lady join us. I met her at a book launch and had a chat to her and she's a naturopath by trade, and got chatting to her about what I was doing. She, in her American accent, said, oh, I'd really like to help with that. I'm like, oh, really? And I'm thinking to myself, you're a naturopath. How is that going to work? I said, have you got any experience in mobile phones? And in her American accent, she goes, 
I worked for Apple head office for 10 years. <laughs> I'm like, you're hired. <laughs> Sign here, please. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah. And that story repeats. We've just brought on another volunteer who her and her husband build databases and they've walked into our setup and gone, geez, this is very manual and you're using Excel a lot. Why don't you put a database in? I'm like, oh, I wouldn't know where to start and we don't have that sort of money. Her and her husband have built us this database from scratch. So I've spent, I think I spent the last month and a half on it, literally seven days a week, building it from the ground up. And we now have, it's halved our our testing time. It's made, literally, we cannot make an error now with anything that we do. So, and they've just come out of thin air and just turn up and said, yep, let's do this. So another lady works for the Branson Foundation, Richard Branson Foundation and Safe Houses Overseas. And then she works with us and lives on the Sunshine Coast. So it's just... I guess what it does for me, it's that evidence. I see the evidence of good things happening, good things coming, the right people showing up. And I still don't know where I'm going to end up with this. Like, it's that's a thing. It's, it's a weird plan that all I know is that, that number of 2 million victims is that number in my head. And we're pushing out you know, 19, 20 phones a day. We're nowhere near 2 million. We, we've given out nearly 7,000 so far. So we've got a long way to go, and I don't know how we're going to get there. I'm conscious that every week we have some new door open somewhere that helps us get to that next step. You may not need to get to 2 million because the more you raise the profile and awareness, we might actually start to bring that statistic back, which is what I dream and hope for in this country. And that if people are starting to physically go, oh, here's a phone, maybe I'll go pop it in that box. Oh, someone's going to need that phone. Maybe, just maybe that might be increasing their awareness that will hopefully then transpire into decreasing the statistics that are out there. Yeah, it definitely does. And just like with the car stuff, with the consumable, that I'd given no thought to the consumable apart from founding there was no support we've had people come to us and go do you realize you've got the best circular economy program in the world and the best esg program in the world i'm like what are they <laughs> what's that and they said you don't know what circular economy <laughs> what is that and they go well think about it yeah all the all the large organizations or any organization wants to do the right thing by the environment and social governance they call it so it's expected of corporates now the board expect it the shareholders expect it like what are you doing to put back in to, to from what you've taken out, whether it be through you've taken out through the environment or you've burnt your people out or whatever the things that are, you're doing that are maybe not so good. And so there's this thing called ESG, which is Environmental, Social and Governance. It used to be called Corporate Social Responsibility. That's kind of a, a new term for it. And these people are saying, mate, you've, you've got this circular economy. I'm like, what are you talking about? I said, well, you're taking a phone and you're giving it a life another life so giving another three years of life without having to melt it down or turn into a glass bottle or something else you're taking it in its existing form and giving it another life and you're saving a life giving it to a victim to protect them so this is what corporates are all looking for out there so we've found that we get so much support from corporates so commonwealth bank for example used to sell their old phones and you know there's a huge second-hand phone market out there that companies who want to buy second-hand phones and forever, you know, Commonwealth Bank's been going for a very long time and they have always sold their old phones. They heard about the program and came back and said, we love this, we want to support you. It was going to take us 12 months to pivot. I go, what do you mean? They said, well, you know, we're a big institution and it's going to take us 12 months to change our processes from selling phones and getting money to giving phones to you and not getting money. Anyway, nine months later, they came back and said, we're ready. We're all sorted. We're ready to go. So 
they have given us in the last two years 4,000 mobile phones, which they could have sold for close to $400,000. So they've just said, you know what, we don't, we, we're not going to miss that $400,000. We'll give you the phones instead. So that's just through them. And then we've had Suncorp Bank put phone collection boxes in all the bank branches in Queensland as I upgrade them, and they're doing that throughout Australia. We've just had some amazing support from these corporates who realise that they can make a real difference and they can use this, just like you said before, to talk about domestic violence with their staff. So they can say, look, we are now collecting old mobile phone staff, bring them in. This is why we're doing it. Timing is interesting because the government has also announced now that companies must give domestic violence leave. So organisations are kind of using us as a bit of a soft way to bring up that topic about domestic violence to say, hey, look, we're going to do this campaign, collecting phones for DVC phone for domestic violence. And by the way, we now offer leave. If you're going through domestic violence, you can speak to HR and you can, yeah, there's actually now a way to talk about it in a way that people can, whether they're affected or not, they can all get involved in some way. And it, it can be quite a, obviously, a deep subject, obviously, but there's a way they can talk about it without getting too deep too early. And when I present, I always talk about some stats. And, you know, the stats are that a woman a week is killed in Australia and a man a month. Like, it's women and men. We know it's ninety more than 95% women, absolutely. We know that's where the real problem is. But it does affect everyone. Like, it affects women, it affects men, it affects the fathers of the daughters. Like, it, it does. It's something that we all need to get involved in in some way. And I think what we've just discovered is a little way people can. So, Ashton, on that note, let's have a really honest conversation. We have tens of thousands of listeners in Australia and all around the world, but focusing in on Australia, what can people do? When they're listening to this conversation, I can only imagine how inspired they are. Like when you say all these doors keep opening and, you know, we've just had these great people around me, all I can think about is they're inspired by your vision. You have such clarity on what you're doing, why you're doing it and how you're doing it. Every inch of this story, every part of everything you've shared, I have been with you every single step of the way because of the way you're able to express yourself, the way you're able to do things for other people to make a difference. Like the legacy that you're leaving is massive. So I think, I don't want to speak for my audience, but I can imagine they're absolutely on the edge of their seats with me listening to you. So what can we do? The two things we need right now are phones and funds. So phones and dollars, they're the two things. If we found a way to get unlimited phones and dollars, we would find a way to get those phones tested and back out the door as quick as we can. Mobile Master did some research and have come out with a story that there's over 25 million phones in people's drawers in Australia right now. And 21 million of those phones work. So all we need people to do is literally go to their drawer and look for an old phone. Go to our website. We've got a map of over 600 places and and building every day. Or post the phones directly to us. And what we do ask is if they have the ability to provide money to, $75 is what it costs us to get a phone out the door. So a phone and $75 would be absolutely amazing. Absolutely amazing. Yeah. And that will give us what we need. And 
I'm shouting out now to all of my community. I want to hold a bit of accountability to this because you all know how passionate I am about this space. My One of my big dreams, audacious goals, is to reduce family violence in this country. So I think that when someone does either put $75 in or finds a phone in their drawer, I want to see a tick in our challenges that change us community on Facebook, just popping a tick up there to say, you know what, I've taken one step in this direction because if we all do one thing, One thing is either finding that phone and popping it in one of those boxes, sending it in or donating $75, the difference this could make, not just to the victims of domestic violence, but to the ongoing generational trauma that is happening in this country. Like it can make such a difference to so many lives with one phone. Mm. I was really shocked to hear what happens in in the life of a domestic violence survivor, like the fact that their phones can be tracked so easily nowadays. And the only real way to get them safe is to give them another phone. Like you can take their existing phone and reset it and do all sorts of things, but perpetrators, if they know what they're doing, they know how to track that phone no matter how many times you reset that thing. So the trick is give them a new phone and there's enough phones in the country that we can do this. We've already proven it with you know 20,000 phones in, we've got nearly 7,000 out. So we've worked at it's about a third of the phones that come in are perfect. Like we can get them going pretty quickly. A third are going to need some pretty significant repairs and a third are literally we'll recycle them out through mobile muster, which is great. At least they don't end up in landfill. But the beautiful thing is we know that every phone that goes out the door is going to someone's hand and we don't need it back because quite often the victims will say to the agency, my God, this is better than my own phone. Like there's no damage because the phones we send out are immaculate. This is like brand new. You know, when do they need it back? And the agency is like, no, this is a gift. This is a gift. And the other thing I love about it is the agencies are giving it to the victim as part of their safety and escape plan. So it's very controlled around, right, here's your phone and here's a plan to help you get safe. The victim will probably never know it came from us at DV Safe Phone. They definitely won't know who it came from originally, who donated it to us. So it's this giving without anything expecting in return. You know, we don't expect payment for the phones. We don't care if they mention us or not. In fact, don't. Like we, As long as we can get the phones to the agencies to give to the victims, that's all that matters to us. We ask for some de-identified stories just so that it helps us tell people the impact that they're having. But it's it's a beautiful thing. And, and you know, I envisaged I'd love to see this working where phones are literally just flying everywhere to where they need to go and no one knows where they're coming from. They're just turning up at agencies. That's where I want to see it go. And when you talk about that de-identified stories, I know I was sitting here thinking this is something that I haven't spoken about in my story on the podcast, but I was in hiding for up to three weeks from hotel to hotel, didn't know where we were getting money from, didn't know where we were going to be staying the next night. So, you know, it really, really does make a difference. And one of the biggest risks out there is when someone decides to leave that's when the violence can get a lot worse and if you can imagine someone sitting out there in the middle of the night having the courage to have walked out or run out or left usually with nothing but not having a way to contact someone to say that they're not feeling safe now like it is so imperative that people can feel safe during that time and there's a number of measures we can put in place and this is one of them that will you have said it save a life Absolutely. I'm very driven that it just takes one person to do something. So if I can do this, I've got no experience in domestic violence. I didn't even think I knew anyone who was a a survivor. If I can do this with no experience, then I hope I've created a platform where everyone can do the same. They can send in the phones, 
sending the phones and we can do it with no experience, but we get the phones to those that have the hundreds of years of experience. Yeah, we're talking police, domestic violence agencies, safe houses and hospitals, and currently there's 300 of them out there all asking for our phones. Uh, normally when they approach us, we say, how many would you like? And we've kept it pretty open. Quite often they'll say, a hundred, please. Like a hundred phones? We No, sorry, like we, if we give you a hundred, then that means we don't have any phones left for a while to give to others. So we limit them to five or ten phones at a time so we can keep the spread out there across the country. But I know that if we could push out a hundred phones at a time instead of ten at a phone, they would all gracefully accept them. Well, I really hope that everyone's going to press stop right now and do something about it. Like, I don't mind if you press stop and don't hear the end of this conversation. Go look in your drawers, find those phones, sit in on your kitchen bench and do something about it tomorrow. The next time you drive into the city, into the town, when you walk down the street, drop it off at one of the boxes because it doesn't cost you anything and it just has such a ripple effect in this country, which we then could ripple out into the whole world. So, Ashton, we have spoken about where people can find you, but can we just – I'll make sure everything's in the show notes. We'll put everything in our Challenges That Change Us Facebook group. I'll definitely pop something up on LinkedIn as well. But just what's the address of your website? If people are wanting to right now go and read more about it, where would they go? Sure. They could go straight to dvsafephone.org. That's .org. So dvsafephone.org or dvsafephone across all the socials. Ashton, I love to finish the podcast with asking who or what in your world truly makes you belly laugh. It's probably our dog, to be honest. We have a very little dog with a little dog syndrome. And it's just, I've always owned bigger dogs and never had a smaller one. And this one is just an absolute crack up its personality and what it does. It's something that's it's funny to watch. You could really you can kind of preempt what it's going to do next and it never lets us down. Thank you so much, Ashton, for finding the time in your day to come on and share this with our audience. I can feel the movement that's happening already just from listening to your story and hearing all the work that you've done. I also get pretty excited about where it's going and what that's going to look like and the conversation that we'll be having in 12 months or two years post this episode. I think it's going to look very different for you guys out there. Thank you so much for your time today, Ali. Really appreciate you getting on board and helping raise awareness. It's such an important topic. Thank you. So I may have got a little passionate at the end of that episode, but that's because I believe in this cause so much. We can really make a difference by doing just one thing. We can change the current statistics in Australia that says one woman a week is killed by domestic violence. Let's get those phones out of our drawers, share this episode with three people you know, and let's move the dial on this. Also, our show notes is where all our information is kept. It has the guest website and contact points. It has the links to all our courses and events, the new mini series podcast, an email address for me if you want to give any feedback, if you know any guests that you'd like me to interview this year. I love hearing from you guys. It just, it means the world to me. It helps carve out some direction of what we want to do for the next 12 months. So please feel free to contact me via socials, via that email address, via the website, however you can get there. But I I love to hear your voice and I love love to know what, what your ideas are and how we can improve this community in this podcast and just bring even more value to your lives. Thank you, everyone. Really looking forward to next Monday's episode. Have a awesome week. 
Thank you everyone for listening and taking the time out of your day. I believe we can learn so much from connecting with other people's experiences and stories. I hope you've gained some strategies and insight from today's episode. You can gain more by joining our Facebook group, Challenges That Change Us, or next week we will return with another episode. Oh, 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 oh,